Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Association of Compliance Officers in Ireland. My name is Tom O'Connor and I chair the ACOI Data Protection and Information Security Working Group and I'm delighted to be guest hosting this episode of the podcast. This episode of the Compliance Files is the third in the Voice of Compliance series where we will be focusing on the role of the Data Protection Officer or DPO. The DPO is a relatively new and unique role having come into effect on a statutory basis in 2018 with the EU General Data Protection Regulation or GDPR. Article 38 of the GDPR sets out the requirements for data controllers and data processors in establishing a DPO, while Article 39 details the tasks of the DPO, including to inform and advise their employers on data processing obligations, monitor compliance with the GDPR, and to be the point person for contact with data protection authorities. For those of us familiar in working in firms with the three lines of defense model, the DPO role resonates with the second line of defense role. However, for most firms, the DPO role is something that is new and untried, and there's a good deal of uncertainty on how that role fits within an organization and how the DPO should operate in practice, which we will seek to address today. In this endeavor, I'm joined by Alan Moore, a member of the Data Protection and Information Security Working Group and Data Protection Specialist, who has deep experience of the DPO role across a variety of firms and sectors. Alan, thank you very much for joining today. Thanks for inviting me, Tom. I think if the DPO role was an Olympic sport, Alan, it could be characterized as a decathlon, given the <laughs> range of competencies and all range of skill sets required to be effective in the role. And given the rapidly evolving and shifting external environments when it comes to data protection with significant new and changing requirements, this decathlon seems to be taking place during a typhoon almost, which adds an extra dimension of challenge, which we'll talk about shortly. But firstly, maybe let's go back to the beginning, Alan, and tell us how you became interested and involved in data protection. Well, one thing I didn't do was wake up in my mid-20s and go, I would love a career in data protection. I don't think any of us had that light bulb moment, should I say. I originally started years back as an IT programmer, I was working on network. And in fact, I had a little stint of time with Erlingus, where I was trained in December 370, where they very kindly locked me in a room with black and white videos with their trainers from the 1960s. But thankfully, I moved on from that and went to work with more modern technology, shall we say. So I enjoyed my time there. Eventually, I ended up working with British Telecom in the UK and they were instigating a very interesting program there where they were trying to get technical experts and managers to develop some sort of system to better communication. The idea was they had created this joint master's program with the university in Sheffield. And two groups of us spent a year trying to understand each other. And I have to say it was quite an eye-opening experience because it made very clear to us that any sort of risk or compliance management program really needs both technical and personal skills. I was fortunate to end up working for them specializing in business continuity. And again, it was one of those areas they recognized where technology alone was not enough. You needed the organizational aspects as well. I later went on then to do more specialism 
from an education in business management because it was a skill set I just didn't have. So eventually I, I was working on major bids and was really enjoying the uh, excitement and the time pressures of that because you were exposed to absolutely everything. But after a couple of years uh, off work, uh, just for family reasons, the opportunity came up then to start studying again. And at that stage, the new Data Protection Act was just coming out. And having read the original releases of it, the drafts, it was very clear that this new version of the Data Protection Act was going to have much bigger teeth and a much broader scope than the original 1990s version that we were dealing with. So I thought, yeah, this will be the one for me. And I actually chose the ACOI course and thoroughly enjoyed getting to grips with the the nuts and bolts of the Data Protection Act. So shortly after I completed the course, I got work with a consulting company. And with their training and guidance, I ended up working as an external data protection officer or an outsourced DPO, which is a model that quite a few companies are now using. And it was one hell of a learning curve. I could imagine. And, you know, it's interesting to come across other data protection specialists who have background in business continuity. It seems to give a good grounding in terms of the, the skill sets and the, and, the, and the knowledge of the business. But what do you find interesting, I suppose, about the DPO role? I would consider it a very privileged role because I think there are few other roles in an organization that allow you to be as curious as you can want to be. We get access to all areas of the business. We get to try and understand exactly how data is used throughout every aspect of the organization's functioning. And I sort of quite like the fact that senior management can't tell you to carry out your role. You have a degree of independence built into the role of the DPO under the GDPR that allows you basically to be not a, a, a difficult person, but somebody who has the independence to actually go and ask questions and get answers. And I suppose I consider myself a pragmatic pessimist. I really understand and enjoy how companies work. I also don't always believe on first pass what somebody tells me about how the organization is work. I think that comes from my business continuity days when, you know, it's one thing to say you have a policy, show me it in use. So I, I think when I go into a, um, a company, it's not only an opportunity, it's my duty to fully understand to the best of my ability how an organization works, to build those relationships and to basically, I mean, I've always found from day one, you land on the doorstep of an organization, people need your help. And that's really rewarding, but also very challenging. Absolutely, for sure. And I suppose, given the world we live in at the moment, where do you see the need for data protection or what's, what's the value that it brings? I suppose I'm not that young anymore. I'm quite long in the tooth, but my start was that I was working on assembler mainframes. And now we have extraordinary processing power in laptops, in our mobile phones, in our cars even. So our use of personal data and our reliance on it is just extraordinary. And I think most people don't realize the sheer volume of personal data they're pumping into other people's networks on a daily basis. So organizations have a huge responsibility to us, the data subjects, to look after our data. And I don't always think that they have the know-how to do that. I don't think it's necessarily malicious, although we know at the moment, like all these hoax calls that are out there asking people for their PPS numbers. We have seen the ransomware attack on the HSE. There is a real need to look after data properly, to be aware of how you're using it, what risks can be posed by the ways you use it and even store it. And I think this isn't going away. This is going to become just a day-to-day -day part of commercial activity. Data protection, in a sense, will become part of your license to operate. 
Very good. And certainly what we've seen is with certainly technology companies using data privacy as a competitive advantage, really, given kind of the way the industries are moving. No, I, I would agree with that, because if you watch the recent release by Apple, they have made privacy a key, unique selling point of their family of products. They're basically going out there and saying, if you want to look after your data, we'll help you. And it's forcing other players in the marketplace to adapt. Even when we look at the way cookies are developing, etc. there's a real push that says, no, this is important because people now want this. They expect it. And it's interesting to see how companies are reacting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, ultimately, you'd be driven by the, the consumer demands. Just moving on, can you give our listeners your thoughts on what are the elements of an effective data protection framework? I must say I'm very old school in this respect, I suppose, because my view is keep it simple and do it well. And my view is that the fundamental foundation of any framework is, in fact, your ROCA, your record of processing activities, knowing what personal data you have, where it is, what you do with it and why. I mean, I'm still amazed at the number of organizations that I've had interaction with. And even, what, three years on now, they still don't have a good ROCA. But that means that the board who are ultimately responsible for the compliance with the GDPR, they're being asked to make decisions without understanding what data they have in their org- their organization and the risks that are associated with that. So for me, number one, get your ROCA right. And the second one is train your staff. You know, this is not some optional extra. Your staff are your frontline agents on your behalf looking after this data. You need them to let you know when something is going wrong. You need them to have the skills and the ability to identify solutions in an emergency. If there's been an issue or a breach, to get that information to the people who need to know as quickly as possible. And in fact, one of the things that surprises me is how much culture can affect it. I've seen in some organizations where uh, they have in their staff handbook, a breach is treated as a disciplinary offense. You're disincentivizing your staff to tell you when something goes wrong when you do that sort of thing. You need to enable them to support them to come and tell you when things go wrong. And there's one thing I have noticed in the last few months, some of the more mature organizations in terms of data protection, they're plugging in their procurement process straight into the record of processing activities. So when a new system comes on board or is even being designed, the data protection officer is involved, they're doing the data protection, the security, the risk upfront, rather than what has been the case in many circumstances where, you know, oh, by the way, we're turning the system on. Can you sign it off, please, with a a DPIA? The good organizations are pushing data protection right up to the very front of that engagement process, and they're getting benefits from it. Yeah, for sure. And it's a great point about culture as well, because if the firm, the board and senior management all embrace data protection, it makes the role of the DPO easier to a degree, but certainly more workable. But just continuing on from that and talking about your experience across firms and sectors, what are the common pitfalls that you've seen organizations make in designing and implementing their data protection frameworks? I think one of the classic ones for me is misunderstanding the role of the DPO. You mentioned uh, Article 37 there and the roles of the data protection officer. We're here to advise, to guide, nudge in the right direction. And sometimes it has to be said to be a right royal pain because we're there to defend the organization 
by defending the data subjects and their data that this, the organization is relying on to carry out their activity. But we are not there to tell an organization what to do or how to do it. We are there to advise. And a lot of senior managers, when a DPO is brought on, they're looking to that person to make decisions on their behalf. The data protection officer has to remain independent. And we've seen that in the recent case in Belgium, for example, where a company was fined because I believe it was their chief compliance officer was registered as CPO. And even the supervisory authority there said, no, that's still not independent enough. And then also, I think when GDPR first rolled out, there was a scramble to give somebody the baseball cap and the title. Congratulations, you're now the DPO. And many of these people scrambled to get effective training and in many cases didn't have the experience required to carry out that role. And I think that that was very unfair on people. And we've seen a lot of comments on the networks, example, before COVID, when we were able to meet at professional events, where people were saying, look, as DPO, I'm just not listening. So it is very important that management understands, especially the board, what the role of the DPO is. You said before on culture, I mean, one of the classic ones for any sort of compliance sector is lack of senior management buy-in. If they believe it's a tick box exercise, you're just wasting your time. The DPO is not going to be able to provide you with a valuable service and you're not going to keep them anyway. You know, you really have to understand as an organization where this creates value. And it really does create value. I mean, I've seen in procurement processes where the requests for tender go out and the first thing that comes back in from really good, mature service providers is, by the way, here's our data protection pack. And it answers nearly all of the questions you would need to ask during an onboarding process in the procurement process. That really inspires help. Also, the, the data protection role as such are the function tends to also push out the importance of data governance, you know, accountability, knowing who's in charge, who's making decisions. So it can be very valuable, but organizations need to understand what that value is. I suppose and the, the last thing where I think companies make a big mistake is that they underestimate the resources needed for this and the level of integration of different functions. This is not a one-person gig. You can't do it on your own. You have to be integrated with experts in their own field. So you need, the data protection officer will need a contact that they work closely with in IT. They will need somebody in human resources. They will need somebody in every business function that understands what the priorities are, agrees them, and can help the DPO understand what's going on. And then in turn, the DPO can better advise the businesses on the ground what they need to achieve. It can be a, a real challenge for organizations that have not been subject to this kind of compliance obligation before. But even for those that are regulated entities such as finance or in medicine as well, it still can be a challenge. And it's not an add-on. It's really not. It has to be integrated well. For sure. And I think you touched on some of them there, but to flip the question around, what are the good practices or innovative solutions that you've seen organizations apply that strengthen the effectiveness of their data protection frameworks? There are a couple of classic ones, and they're very simple wins. One of the key ones for me is get your staff trained early. Answer their questions. I don't mean just roll out a video. Please confirm you've watched this 16 minutes of fascinating data protection facts. That's not going to do it. You have to have workshop. You have to give staff the opportunity to ask their questions to make sure that they understand what's going on. And in fact, one of the things that I've always noticed in giving face-to-face -face training 
if I've done my job well, after the first 10 or 15 minutes, the questions that come forward are extraordinary because the staff now understand what it is that has to be done and they want to make that change. So training staff, absolutely. The other one is slightly more, it's, it's a bit aligned to culture really, but it's treating personal data as an organization's, well, one of their most valuable assets. No other valuable asset in an organization is left unowned or without a very strong management wrap around it. You look at finance or anything else, there is much more control, accountability, ownership in place. Data should be treated in the same way. And by data, I don't mean IT. IT provides a hugely important uh, service, a technical environment in which the data lives and moves around. But it's not the same. I, I would propose that if an organization has the capacity and the size, that they should be appointing somebody who is the data owner and somebody who is responsible for making sure that the data is looked after well by engaging the processes and the services and the advice from the DPO, from IT and from external vendors. But unfortunately, data is still orphaned an awful lot in major organizations. And of course, as I mentioned before, it's the ROPA from day one. You've got to know what data you have, what you do with it, and where it is. And one last thing I would suggest as well, in several organizations, I've had to go in and I've had to have a training session with board members. And in many cases, you're told, right, you have 15 minutes, they just want an overview. Thank you very much. Never have I come out in less than an hour. And one of the comments I will often end with is, data protection is your ultimate responsibility. It stops with you. You will be held accountable. And while you may have director's insurance, director's insurance may help you pay a fine, though that's still not clear. It's not been tested in court. But the one thing it can't do is pay for somebody to do jail time on your behalf. And if you make a royal mess of this, that could be something that you're facing. And in fact, I, I gave that talk to a board of a credit union a couple of years ago, and the manager rang me the next week to say three of his board members had resigned. And my view is good. You can't afford to have people on a board who are coasting. They've got to be doing their job. And one example I have seen that's been very good, I think very useful to an organization, there was a portfolio of responsibilities spread among the board members. So there was actually a board member whose responsibility was data protection. And that was the person who the DPO reported to directly. And normally on a monthly basis, they would go for lunch or there would be a presentation or whatever. But the board were able to discuss then with a degree of information necessary, what the challenges were. But it also meant that if the board were discussing something separately, they knew they could reach out to the DPO just to get a bit of advice on something or to check their logic behind what they were deciding. But I think don't assume the board understand what their responsibilities are. And especially in a voluntary organization or a charity, you need to get that training done. And I suppose one last thing, actually, a colleague of mine who worked in IT was telling me that there's a very strong push now to reduce variation in the number of systems and processes that are in place. An awful lot of companies are hampered by legacy systems. There's old COBOL systems in the background, or you know, there's distributed spreadsheets or databases all over the place. I have a feeling that data protection will force the retirement of those systems at a much faster pace going forward. And especially with the risks out there from ransomware, et cetera, the idea of concentrating your data in fewer systems but systems that are better protected and better monitored is probably going to be the way forward. Because breaches will happen, but 
It's just a matter of lowering the consequences of those breaches and putting the best systems in place that you can afford. Very good. I suppose we've covered it in a good bit of detail already, just around your, your recanting there of board members resigning following being informed of their obligations and under data protection. But is there anything else under governance and accountability that you think is necessary for a robust data protection program? The whole issue of ownership of systems is often a challenge, especially for larger organizations where there may be centrally provided systems that many business units access for different purposes. I think there has to be an understanding of the cost of compliance. The provision of these services is not free and the cost is probably increasing, to be honest, given the, um, the reliance on resilience now and the benefit of such resilience programs and security penetration tests and things like that, intrusion detection. All these things cost money, but is also the actual compliance part of it, the checking the data is being managed properly, ensuring the systems are not holding on to data unnecessarily, dealing with subject access requests. There is a cost to this. And one of my colleagues was saying to me the uh, other day that his view was that in the procurement process, the cost of compliance is not a cost that's factored in. So even, for example, recently in the last few weeks, we've seen the new versions of the standard contractual clauses. They've just been released and approved. And it still says that there has to be a risk assessment done of the third country that you may wish to send personal data to. Well, that's going to cost money. There's also going to be probably a higher level of risk. So there's a potential reputational cost and indeed a possible financial cost if something goes wrong with that data. So there is an important drive now, I think, to better understand what those costs are, but then also who is responsible for them. And part of that is linked to the ownership of systems and the use of data. As uh, one commentator put it, you can't afford freeloaders now. You need to have each part of the company understanding that their decisions incur costs, whether it's at the point where they're choosing a new system or developing a new process or product, they have to build in the cost of compliance. And again, just to reiterate the point, the DPO is there to advise and to educate. Use them as early in the process as possible, but do not expect them to roll out your compliance process. That's not for them to do. And in fact, many of the more mature companies, and you'll even see it on the job adverts now, more and more roles for for this new role of a data protection manager. And this is the person who, working for the business, is being assigned the task of implementing the systems and the strategies and having them tested in conjunction with the DPO, their advice, with their advice and their monitoring function. But the data protection manager complements the role of the DPO, but it helps keep the DPO independent and also extends, as it were, the ability for their advice to be implemented in a structured and an efficient way. One thing I would like is a reflection. I had a very interesting interview for a position a couple of years ago, which I was very flattered to be offered in the end, didn't take it. And one of the reasons I didn't take it was that a question that came up several times in the interview was, how would I force people to comply with internal policy? The DPO is not the data police. not going to come in with flashing lights and batons to make sure that people are deleting data uh, at the end of a retention period. We're there to advise. We're there to guide. And in fact, we're there to help. So in many cases, our role is to sit with the person who has a problem and help sort it out, but not make decisions. We can provide advice, guidance, and recommendations based on what we've seen work elsewhere, but we're not going to make that decision for you.
some really interesting insights in there, but hopefully some more to come. Can you talk to me about notable challenges and successes you've had as a DPO? Well, I, I, I need to point out that in most of my experience, I have been an external DPO, and that comes with pros and cons. So the positive side of it is certainly we have a degree of separation from the organization. It's much easier to be independent when you're not reporting to a manager who's paying, paying your monthly salary. I've spoken with a lot of data protection officers who just feel they're not in a position to do their job. They don't have the freedom. The downside of being an external DPO is that, as again, you are somewhat removed from the organization. So you're much more dependent on developing those relationships and having a team around you from the organization you're working with who can integrate you into how they're operating and functioning and using their, their data. But again, one of the things that I suppose it can be very difficult for an external DPO, especially in a consulting company, is that sometimes you have to be prepared to walk away from a client. And my view on it is that you're there to provide a service, a valuable service, both to the organization and the data subjects whose data they're using. If an organization is simply not listening to you, and it can be because of a difference in personalities, or it can be cultural, it can be for any number of factors, but you have to be able to say, look, I'm sorry, this is not working. I think you need to find somebody else. We don't seem to be able to help. And in fact, on one occasion, I remember that's exactly what we did. We walked away, as was permitted within our contract. It was well written, but we had to walk away. And it's a matter of integrity and pragmatically protecting your own reputation. It's a small community in Ireland, and you can't really be associated with an organization that you know is basically riding roughshod over GDPR. It's a difficult decision to make, but it has to be made. And that was not one of the most pleasant days I had in my career. But there are certainly, there are good days and there are some very good days. One of my more recent ones was I was negotiating on behalf of a client with a large multinational. And again, there was that classic power imbalance where large service provider doesn't want to listen to small service purchaser. And basically we were reviewing their terms and conditions and the contractual clauses. And again, it's this whole thing of, are you a controller? Are you a processor? Are you a joint controller? And our view was very different to, to theirs. And after several weeks of discussions, nothing was really happening. We couldn't make any progress. And as is permitted, if not required under the Data Protection Act, because it was a risk we could not mitigate, we reached out to the Data Protection Commissioner and consulted with them. And I have to say they were superb. I understand they're under huge pressure. I understand that they have a, a very significant international role to play, given all the multinationals here. But they were very supportive and they helped us in a timely manner. And it turned out that the multinational had to go away and rewrite their standard terms and conditions and contract for that service for the rest of Europe. So wins are possible even when you're on the smaller side of the field, shall we say. It's a great, great tale of uh, David and Goliath there. But it's also good to hear of a regulator who, who's proactive and willing to engage on kind of matters of interest between those kind of parties. But just going back to the issue of, I suppose, the inherent conflict really of the, the role of the DPO being an employee, but also being independent. How can an organization set up their DPO for success? Again, back to the, what we were discussing before, they need to understand the role of the DPO and to understand what it is the DPO can do for them and to understand that it will take time for the DPO to understand their business fully. So when they engage a data protection officer, once they've gone through the process of finding somebody 
with the right skills and experience. Help them to understand the organization as quickly as possible. Give them the organizational charts, set up meetings, bring them on tours of the organizational departments, let them start building the relationships. We mentioned before the importance of a direct link to the board of directors. That is essential. The DPO needs to be able to raise concerns, to ask advice of uh, the, the board in terms of what they see as the, the priorities for the company, et cetera, to get context, I think is a better way to put it. So giving the DPO direct access to a board member or the board itself, depending on the size of the company, is very important. There has to be a sort of a regular meeting, a structured progress plan with senior management where priorities are agreed. Every organization will have challenges and issues that need to be rectified. It's important that everybody has input into what's possible. There's no point in dreaming up a schedule that just can't be met based on resource limitations or just how the business operates. But it's very important to have some way of agreeing priorities and a way to move ahead. The DPO is there to work with you. They're not there to cause problems. And a good DPO will have the ability to to sidestep some of the, shall we say, more sensitive political landmines within an organization. They can exist. Let's be practical about this. We're a bunch of humans trying to achieve different goals within one organization. And it's very rare that that's different. But again, working in partnership, that's what they need to expect from their DPO. The other thing as well is uh, it is a requirement under the GPO. But unfortunately, we've all had experience of being in either positions or dealing with DPOs who just don't have any resource. And like that's not going to work in your favor. If there's a major issue and there's an investigation by the, by the DPC, one of the things they can look at is, have you facilitated your DPO with the essential resources to carry out their role? And if you haven't, that's not the DPO's fault. That's the organization's fault. And basically, you know, we've mentioned it before, the ROPA, even before you get your DPO, start getting that in. Figure out what you have, where it is, what it does, and who's in charge of it. Because that can take a very, very long time to get in place. And you don't need a data protection officer to start that work. But it certainly helps when there's something in place that the data protection officer can look at and go, so that's what your company does and how it does. So it's certainly worth investing the resources. IT is a great place to start because they tend to have an inventory of digital assets, of what the systems do, who's providing service, et cetera. Good place to start. Won't have all the information, but definitely a, a useful place to start building your role. And then, of course, a personal call out to all organizations who provide a DPO. Please provide us with basic good coffee. The number been in where it has been awful. <laughs> I think at this stage, it's almost a fundamentally human right to have good coffee, especially for working in data protection, because let's face it, it is challenging. For sure. I think, you know, good coffee is mandatory for productivity these days. But I suppose just taking it on one step further then from kind of the challenges, both internal and external, that a DPO can face, what are the key skills that an effective DPO needs to, to manage those? Uh, to be serious here, a DPO needs to be more than just a person with one discipline. I think they have to be in the equivalent of an organizational polyglot. They need to be able to speak with IT, with management, with marketing, with legal, with HR. You, in a sense, have to be that person who can bring the different activities of an organization together in one logical 
data map so you can figure out what's going on. I think data protection going forward will be just like, for example, an MBA was originally seen as adding business to engineers. I think there's a very important role for education and the ACOI courses. Professionals can add on expertise in data protection to allow them to integrate into providing that service which the organization needs. But also the flip side of that is a data protection officer needs to be able to communicate in plain English. You are the first point of contact for data subjects. You need to understand what their concerns are. You need to be able to build trust and to do your job clearly without using jargon, without trying to be seen to be defensive and whatnot. You're there to help, not to judge. The other thing I would say is that don't let perfect get in the way of good. A lot of DPOs are struggling because there isn't the best system there to capture the ROPA or there isn't the best system in place for dealing with breaches and whatnot. Is it good enough? Will it do for now? Again, this will mature over time. There will be different supports will come onto the market. But I would also caveat that a little bit and say, be careful not to be over-reliant on tools. From a programmer, I learned at a very early stage, garbage in, garbage out. Tools are only as good as the people who are using them and the quality of the information that's put into them. So yes, use tools, avail of them, but don't rely on them too much. And one last thing I would say is, from sort of a more precautionary viewpoint is keep detailed records. When you have given advice or when you have assessed a breach or an issue, it's very important that you record your logic and the advice you have given and the reason for it. While the data protection officer is not responsible for compliance, we are responsible for giving good advice. And I have seen, unfortunately, a few places where business have not been overly eager to implement the advice they've had been given in a timely manner. And then when something did go wrong, they looked to try and blame the DPO. Now, it doesn't often happen, but again, depending on the organization you're in and personalities, it is a possibility. Protect yourself, keep good records, and basically be organized. There's going to be an awful lot of different issues will come your way. There will be pressures on your time. You need to be organized or get someone to work with you who will help organize you. That's what I've had to do in the past. It's really important to have T's crossed and the I's dotted, to have the information at your fingertips when you need it. So good record keeping is very important. All good advice and a great point as well around the key of communication skills, I think, as well, because data protection and GDPR can be quite abstract. So translating that into the the language of the organization can be a really positive first step. Just to turn to to the external environment, and there's a a lot going on at the moment in data protection, as, as there usually is, but what regulatory developments should listeners look out for in the coming months? I would agree with you that data protection is a constantly moving field. I've sometimes heard it described, it's like going on to a football pitch. They haven't quite figured out where the goalposts are yet, but the match has still begun. And this is what's happening at at the moment. And for me, that's part of the interest of data protection. It's principle-based. The interpretations are constantly developing. We have court rulings. We have different governments and jurisdictions taking different approaches. So yes, there's, there's always a lot going on. For me, I suppose, three things that that I'm interested in at the moment. First of all would be the SCCs. So we have clarity that they are usable. We have guidance on the new wording and advice on how to 
start to understand how we implement these. But there's a lot of work to be done yet. It'll be interesting in the next few months to see what the supervisory authorities will accept as being an adequate level of risk assessment being carried out by an organization on a third country when they are going to or are considering sending personal data to that country. I think there's an awful lot to be seen yet, and it'll just take time. But that's definitely one thing that's going to be consuming a lot of energy for some companies going forward. We've also recently seen the adequacy ruling for the UK, which I'm, uh, I, I welcome at the moment because of how closely tied we are to the UK. It's really important that because for many of our systems, we have service providers over in the UK and also we provide services into the UK that that adequacy ruling is welcome. My concern would be that previously the European authorities were concerned about surveillance laws, etc. in the UK, saying that they were likely not compatible with the GDPR and that adequacy would be difficult based on these rules or these, these laws. This seems to have been overcome, but I would not be surprised if there is a challenge to that adequacy ruling sometime in the future. The other thing that worries me in the UK is there have been rumblings politically regarding pressure to weaken the current framework as is to try and give some perceived benefit benefit to industry, to make the UK more attractive to multinationals to set up in the UK because they'll be given more freedom with what, with what they can do with personal data. I think if that's a road the UK goes down, that adequacy ruling will definitely be in difficulty. But again, time will tell. We just don't have enough information. And then the other one, which the, the last of the three, which I think is worthy of keeping an eye on, shall we say, is that the Austrian Supreme Court recently submitted a case to the European Court of Justice regarding non-material damages. I must, must say I've been surprised that not that the, the rights of data subjects to go to court to enforce their own rights, which was a major change in the GDPR, and I thought was probably one of the biggest changes, that we were no longer relying on supervisory authorities. We could go ourselves and say, dear organization, you're mishandling my data and I want to enforce my rights in court. We've not seen a deluge of that. And it's not that I think it's not happening. What I've heard from law firms is that these cases are going to court regularly. They're being listed in the circuit court, but then they're being settled out of court because no company wants to be the first to set a precedent in the legal system. So the fact that the Austrian court has gone to, to Europe and said, look, how do we interpret these non-material damages? I think that this is an indication that there's momentum, shall we say, that people are now getting to the point where going to court is going to become a more frequent occurrence. And I think it, it, it's, it's a flag, as it were, that this is coming down the line, albeit later than I had originally expected. Great. And just to touch on something that's obviously getting a lot of coverage at the moment. So processing data on, on the vaccination status for employees and customers looks like it could be a real challenge for organizations. The Data Protection Commission last week said that obtaining employee vaccination status, personal data in anticipation of returning to the office is likely to be unlawful in the absence of any legislation or a strong direction from the National Public Health Emergency Team. How do you see this playing out? I think it's a really difficult question, partly because it is about the balance of rights, but also because it 
depends wholly on the scenario we're talking about. So, for example, the Data Protection Commission released their guidance was at the end of June. We had the workplace advisory from the government there, I think it was December of last year. But again, we've moved on, thankfully, so rapidly. We're now at something like 50% of the population have been vaccinated. We're getting more vaccines from Romania. The framework in which we need to assess this balance of rights is changing. But my view is that until vaccines are readily available to anybody who wants. The choice not to not to take a vaccine doesn't really interfere with the workplace. Because at the moment, remember, we're still encouraged to work from home where, wherever possible. Only for those services where you have frontline staff or where people have to interact with other people to provide that service, then there is a requirement perhaps there to understand if somebody has a vaccine or not. But in those circumstances, until such time as that we understand what the risks are if somebody is not fully vaccinated, if we reach the position where the majority are, how safe is the workplace, which will have to include a risk assessment of ventilation and all these other things. I think it is going to be necessary for the government to provide a statutory instrument, perhaps as a temporary addendum to the safety Health and Welfare Work Act, basically to allow an employer under very strict circumstance to ask if somebody has been vaccinated, but only where face-to-face -face interaction in the provision of a service or production, et cetera, is necessary. And I think that should only exist until such time as we've reached a level of vaccination and a, a level of tolerance of acceptable risk that we can say that is no longer necessary. It would be treated like flu or anything else. The employer does not need to know. And in that interim, where the statutory instrument might allow them to process this data, it should be held separately from the employee's um, HR file. It should be restricted only to a very small number of people who need to understand who has been vaccinated and who has not in order to allocate rosters, etc. So very limited use, limited access and a temporary permission until such time we're confident we're on top of the COVID-19 and the variants it's throwing at us. Great, that all makes really good sense. Also looking longer term, what do you see as the developments and challenges in the years to come in implementing data protection controls? Part of the problem is the speed at which technology is developing. So we don't really know how we're going to be using data going forward or how we're going to be gathering it. Part of that, we just have to wait and see and adapt legislation and best practice as new technologies emerge. I do think that the companies that are using legacy systems, the clock is ticking. It's getting to the point where the, the cost of maintaining these systems and the risk of a data breach of um, not being able to delete data when you no longer need it, when you've come to the end of your retention periods, all of that is going to push for a faster pace of replacing le legacy systems. It's going to take money, but I think there's no choice at this point. The amount of functionality you need, even in basic data storage, to understand when the data was gathered, from where and for what purpose, all that influences the, the retention period and the rights that data subjects have to call up and say, actually, you don't need my data anymore. I'm objecting to your use of my data or I wish to be forgotten. You don't need to get rid of it. There are many systems out there still which just can't accommodate that. Their time is up. You can't afford to have this. The other thing that I think, unfortunately, the recent circumstances have demonstrated 
when we used to go into organizations and talk about have you tested your business continuity plan? How about the maturity level of your resilience? How comfortable are you that you can withstand attacks, etc.? That was like, yeah, 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 whatever. Look, we're grand. We have a we have a plan. It's in the filing cabinet. We reviewed it last year. That's gone. We've, I think, all learned the lesson that you need to simplify and strengthen the systems that store and process your data. You need to test them. And you need to test the organizational structures around it because delivery of your services for most organizations is not purely online. You need the people and you need the technology. So I think there's going to have to be a much bigger investment in consolidating IT systems, in beefing up resilience, following the guidance of the expertise that's coming out of government, but also out of the different IT companies who are looking to to face the challenge that we don't want to face. The reality is our data is so valuable now that even the denial of access to it is worth tens of millions to organizations. So we have to start investing in the redesign of our systems, the consolidating and the protecting of those systems. And one thing which I I just don't understand, when the GDPR was written, it mentions encryption as a possible tool. The advice I would give to organizations now is if you have personal data and not just special category data sitting somewhere in your organization, it should be encrypted. There's no reason nowadays why it shouldn't be. And if your systems are going to be slowed down by the fact that you can't, that you're encrypting at the database at disk level, or you're doing it at file level, then to be honest, you have the wrong system. Encryption is just going to be a necessity if you're deciding to process personal data. And suppose the last thing we're going to see as well is that now this is purely my belief. I think the belief and the hope that we would have one data protection approach throughout Europe is a dream too far at the moment. I think we are going to see different jurisdictions adding extra requirements on controllers and processors to protect data of their citizens in different circumstances. We have seen, for example, in France, the French supervisory authority has the ability to write laws. Ours does not. We have seen recently where the Belgian supervisory authority, it has been confirmed that they have the right to challenge a a controller or processor under certain circumstances, even if the, the lead data controller would be Ireland, for example. So there's always been a degree of fragmentation there because of cultural priorities, et cetera, and history. I hope not, but I think there is going to be an increase in jurisdictional differences regarding requirements for data protection going forward. And it's something that's going to increase the challenge for organizations that do business across different European boundaries. Grace. And finally, then, what advice would you give anyone seeking to embark on a career in data protection? How do they go about it? And what are the rewards? <laughs> right. Hopefully good coffee. I would think This is still a very young discipline. We do see that data protection as a compliance function is separating out into its own domain as such. Different recruiters use have it aligned under the legal profession. Some would do it under risk. Some would do it under IT, in fact, IT security and data protection. But we have seen that there are new roles emerging. There's the data protection manager. There's data protection specialist. And what we're expecting of these people is more than just a legal background. In fact, what we are seeing is that, as as we said before, it takes experts in different disciplines with data protection 
as an additional skill set to provide a team that is actually going to protect the data within your organization. It's very important you get good training like the ACUI, where you are being taught by experts who are doing this, not just talking about doing this. This is a scenario-based education model you're going to need. Yes, you need to understand the principles as set out in the law, the specific requirements that different jurisdictions you have might have, but then it's about the doing of it. And you need the expertise and the experience of, of others. So I think no matter what role you're in within the organization that you join, you can start to migrate towards data protection. Take the courses your, or, your organization provides, do some reading, get formal training on your own. Again, I would recommend the ACOI course because I'm biased, but it was very good. But I would also say, be very good at something else as well. Know what your connection point is. If you're HR, develop your CV to be HR and data protection. If you're IT, IT with security and data protection is a perfect fit. So in a sense, you become part of the bigger puzzle. The other thing I would say is try and join a professional network. As I said, nothing beats being able to sit down with somebody else interested in data protection and discussing a new development or a challenge you're, you're having. Because it takes different viewpoints to find a pragmatic solution to address different challenges. You won't always have the answer. You can't and don't expect to have. You need to have that degree of humility to go to someone and go, I have no idea even where to start with this problem. The number of times I have had situations before me where the legislation clearly wasn't written with this in mind, and nor should we have expected it. But that's why it evolves and grows and that's half the joy for me of data protection. You have to keep learning. The other thing I have to say is you need to be fairly confident in yourself. And that's not always easy. Different people have different levels of confidence, but you can't take some of the pushback you will get personally. In many cases, you are the bearer of bad news. You know, what you're doing to your organization is wrong. Here's why. And here's what I suggest you do about it. Many organizations won't want to hear that, but that's what your role is. You're there to advise, you're there to guide, you're there to educate, but you are not there to make decisions on their part. Great advice. Thank you, Alan, for that. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for your time. Great. We'll be sure to furnish you with a high quality coffee in due course. Don't worry. I'll hold you to that now. <laughs> this has been the Compliance Files podcast. Thank you for listening. Data protection law underwent a fundamental reform in May 2018. The date on which the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, came into force. This new law has significantly changed what data protection law is and how it applies. GDPR imposes new penalties and liabilities on data controllers and processors who fail to comply with its provisions. The Professional Certificate in Data Protection, a 10 ECTS award at level 9 on the National Framework of Qualifications, was designed in consultation with the Office of the Data Protection Commissioner. It provides data protection officers and compliance officers with the expert knowledge of data protection and is the only accredited qualification at this level. Participants will learn through an applied approach and develop specialist skills and competence to support and advise their organization in managing and mitigating data protection-related reputational compliance and financial risks. Whatever your career stage, experience, or ambition, the ACY is here to support you. To find out more on our educational offerings and how you can register, please visit acoi.org.
www.compliancefiles.ie. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.